Section 18 of Charles II by Osmond Derry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. Charles and Clarendon, Part 4. These were the more innocent relaxations of the court. To try to describe the darker side, to throw open fully the doors of that temple of unabashed wickedness, where Lady Castlemaine sat enthroned, triumphant goddess of lust, is forbidden by the reticence of modern life. The passage of sorrowful eloquence in which Clarendon describes the moral and social disintegration, the destruction of all family ties, the loss of individual honour in men and women alike, which had resulted from the political upheaval of the past thirty years is well known. In such loose soil every base character grew unchecked to rankness, the Barclays and the Bennets, the Buckinghams and the Sedleys, the Chiffinches and the Bab Mays among men, the Castlemains and their like among women, while austere men like Clarendon and high-souled men like Ormond and cultured men like Evelyn, and, bitterest condemnation and shame of all, purient bourgeois-like peeps, looked on at the burning lusts the profane and abominable lives with sorrow and contempt and there are a few pure women also who gaze shuddering or hide their faces in very shame the committee to get mrs stuart for the king francis stuart with whom he was besotted but who managed after all to rise so far above her sisters as to leave her virtue an open question and to become as duchess of richmond an honest woman charles when she escaped him furious as a satyr who has missed his clutch at a wood-nymph his sottish slavery a jest to every boy in the street factions high between him and james and all the bestial court in an uproar with their loose amours sedley and buckhurst running naked through the streets beaten by the watch and locked up all night the king taking their parts Charles, too drunk to give audience to Arlington on his way to Newmarket, and making the fiddlers at Thetford sing all the obscene songs they could think of, Lady Castlemaine declaring that her little daughter will be the first maid in the court that will be married, flaunting forty thousand pounds of jewels upon her dress, and receiving the bold petition of the poor whores of London, swearing that the king should own her child, and that she would have it christened in the chapel at Whitehall to proclaim his assent, or she would bring it to the gallery and dash the brains of it out before his face. The maids of honour at the royal chapel breaking out in unrestrained mirth when the chaplain discoursed on marriage and continence. The king's friends whipped up from the taverns and brothels of Westminster to vote against some obnoxious measure. Charles robbed and kidnapped in a disreputable house at Newmarket, and obliged to disclose his identity before he was set free, or at supper at the rooms of his bastard son's young wife with his usual associates, all mad in hunting a poor moth, while the Dutch guns could be heard roaring in the Thames, and London lay in ruins. All this and a thousand times more would be needed before we could duly gauge the riot of recklessness and sin in which the court was steeped. With one anecdote we will close the record of shame. 
and we choose it because a historical writer of repute who has given special attention to this time has gravely stated that charles was free of the vice of drinking the king and his brother with a chosen band were out hunting when they came to sir george carteret's house at cranburn and there they were entertained and all made drunk and being drunk armourer did come to the king and swore to him by god sir says he you are not so kind to the duke of york as late you used to be not i says the king why so why says he if you are let us drink his health why let us says the king then he fell on his knees and drank it and having done the king began to drink it nay sir says armourer by god you must do it on your knees so we did and all the company and having done it all fell a-crying for joy being all maudlin and kissing one another the king and the duke of york and the duke of york and the king and in such a maudlin pickle as never people were and so passed the day so that men were constrained to say of all places if there be hell it is here no faith no truth no love nor any agreement between man and wife or friends make what excuses we may and they reside only in the earlier pages of this book of all this the memory of charles must rightly bear the shame blush o heavens so speaks an anonymous writer and be astonished o earth a people loved of god and so often saved by his wonderful providence are become the tyre and sidon the sodom and gomorrah of the world let us repent in dust and ashes let us turn to god from the bottom of our hearts with fervent love and good works of our martyred ancestors or their life and death will rise up in judgment against us and god will yet suffer their and our enemies to swallow us up quick we must however guard against the impression that the vice of whitehall was reflected in the homes of the country gentlemen the verneys the ishams the norths the harleys and their like or that it passed without protest from them the private family correspondence of the time abounds with expressions of dismay at the state of london that wicked town and with hopes that the younger members who have to go there will remain pure in the general profanity of london sin writes sir e harley every day grows high and impudent the lord i trust will graciously provide a hiding-place for his poor children my children said lady fitzjames are in no heart to marry and i believe if they do not marry till they can have religious men they never will i think they will not be in the worst condition if they never do unless men were better than as the world goes now to leave charles with no farther comment no saving clause would however be false to fact his character was curiously multiple there never lived a king who more openly though in his own peculiar fashion declared his admiration for honesty purity and loftiness of mind and while he led the devil's dance of drunkenness and prostitution he never concealed his contempt for his followers sedley was good enough to drink with and buckingham made a rare fool we know them all very well these shameless men and women and we are apt to think that none other were in the court it is but right to lay emphasis upon the ormonds and the ansleys the evelyns the murdays and the marvels charles's intellectual tastes moreover were keen 
like his insight into character and his business aptitude until all fell together into the dreary decadence which attends upon unbridled self-indulgence he could talk and talk admirably upon naval architecture with pepys and petty and evelyn and the new yacht built for him in sixteen sixty three was fitted with navigating contrivances of his own he spent many long days in his laboratory with robert murray who had been president of the royal society and was certainly the ablest scotchman of his day he could discuss theology with an austere divine or a pretty quakeress politics with his sister music and painting with all comers and at any rate and here we think may be found one key to his popularity then as now there was no pretense in him clarendon knew him well when as we saw at an earlier page he advised dr creighton to suppress his dedication and we have already quoted his exclamation upon seeing his portrait odds fish i'm an ugly fellow he was genially ready to accept the official censure of those whose claims to give it he admitted i am going to hear little ken tell me of my faults he would say with gay resignation occasionally there was a gentle deprecation of what appeared to him hypercriticism and he was no doubt sincere in believing that god would not damn a man for a little irregular pleasure when compelled to listen to remonstrance he made two provisos it should be presented to him in good taste and he must not be expected to alter his ways tell dr frampton he said to a gentleman of his bedchamber when that divine had preached before him upon the sin of adultery that i am not angry to be told of my faults but i would have it done in a gentlemanlike manner and he read burnet's letter of remonstrance twice before he threw it into the fire his patience under the preachers to whom he was bound to listen was exemplary whether it were a young man playing the fool upon the doctrine of purgatory or a royal chaplain who preached an unnecessary sermon upon original sin one source of his strength has lately been given to the world we have he says in a delightful letter to his sister at paris the same disease of sermons that you complain of there but i hope you have the same convenience that the rest of the family has of sleeping out most of the time which is a great ease to those who are bound to hear them the urbane nonchalance of charles was but seldom ruffled and the storm was soon over about matters of state he was never more than annoyed it was only when some offence of a specially personal nature was committed that he lost his natural mildness and command over his anger which never transported him beyond an innocent puff and spitting we have already quoted the letter to de cardenas before the restoration an attempt to thwart his favour for a disreputable companion or a blunder of his attendant in shutting the door of his room against someone whose admission he had sanctioned would throw him into a tempest of anger for the moment and at the close of his life monmouth was the cause of the most vehement fit of wrath that bruce had ever witnessed but the most detailed and striking instance of a loss of self-control was when henry saville one of his gentlemen voted for the address against lauderdale in the house of commons in sixteen seventy eight the king was mightily displeased against him and to so high a degree that when he was late that night going to bed and saville coming in after his ordinary way 
the king upon the first sight of him fell into such a passion that his face and lips became as pale almost as death his cheeks and arms trembled and then he said to savile you villain how dare you have the impudence to come into my presence when you are guilty of such baseness as you have shown this day i do now and from henceforth discharge you from my service commanding you never to come any more into my presence nor to any place where i shall happen to be it surprised no one to hear that savile was in attendance again in a few days his magnificent constitution and his active habits enabled charles to defy the effects of unrestrained debauchery for more than thirty years here again he reminds us of his ancestor henry the fourth it was seldom that he passed a day without visiting the tennis court as early as there was light enough to see clearly in summer he was there at five in the morning on october fifth sixteen sixty at eight he told clarendon at council i am now going to take my usual physic at tennis it was in the tennis court that grave interviews were granted when the lords of the hamilton party came in sixteen seventy eight to press their cause against lauderdale they kissed hands in the lobby of the court and it was in sixteen seventy nine that he had his first serious illness from the chill which he caught after a hard game by sauntering along the waterside in st james's park he was devoted to every form of open-air sport especially hunting and a chief attraction of england to him was that there was no country where a man could be abroad so many months in the year or so many hours in the day when not hunting he generally walked three or four hours a day which he did commonly so fast that as it was really an exercise to himself so it was a trouble to all about him to hold up with him he would ride fourteen miles to dine with one of his court or to banstead down or epson to see a foot-race returning the same evening and we hear how the king tired all their horses and comes home with not above two or three able to keep pace with him on another day he covered sixty miles rising at dawn on a summer day and reaching home to consult with murray at midnight his early habits were a sore trial to those who had business with him this morning i went to wait upon the king but he was gone by five o'clock to hampton court entries like this are frequent and when the baffled visitor returned in the evening for the promised interview charles had been hunting all the day and was very sleepy and so appointed the bishop to attend to-morrow morning long after eleven o'clock at night on march seventh sixteen sixty nine he sat writing to his sister so sleepy as i hope you will pardon the shortness of it and at three in the morning was on his horse for audley end where he used to stay for the races until fitting lodgings were arranged for him at newmarket excelling in every form of physical exercise charles was especially noted for his horsemanship in the widest sense of the word this was the gift of newcastle himself a noted horseman and breeder of horses who relates with pride how he had the honour to be the first to sate him on horseback and did instruct him in the art of horsemanship while quite a boy charles acquired an intimate knowledge of horses and the power to make the most of them newcastle notes how he saw that his majesty made my horse go better than any italian or french riders who had often rid them would do 
and to hear him say that there are very few who know horses, which was knowingly said, and wisely judged of his majesty. It being very certain that all men undertake to ride them, but few know them or can tell what they are good for. It is not to be wondered at that horse-breeding and racing should, as Newcastle had advised, be sedulously patronized, and that even though Britons fell, Newmarket's glories should rise. There is not, we imagine, a noted racehorse of the present day which does not trace its pedigree to the eastern blood imported into England by Charles. Racing in a formal sense with its spring and autumn meetings began with the institution of the twelve stone plate in 1665, though the king's first personal visit was not until March 1666. From that time he rarely missed a meeting, sometimes indeed being at Newmarket thrice in the year, and since the whole court usually accompanied him, the little town became accustomed to the gay wickedness of Whitehall, which was made even gayer and more wicked by the absence of the usual formalities and ceremonial. Business was seldom allowed to intrude upon these holidays, and ministers and ambassadors attended him in vain. There was nothing but hunting and horse-racing to be spoken of. Most excellent preachers indeed, as Newcastle had promised, came for Sundays from Cambridge, and in 1673 Charles administered a severe rebuke to them for wearing their hair and wigs unbecomingly long, and bade them, possibly in the hope of effecting a curtailment there also, to deliver their sermons for the future by memory. A letter from Sir Nicholas Armourer, who had put two guineas on Lord Thomond's thumps for the great race in 1668 on behalf of the owner, gives a glimpse of Newmarket existence. Thy armourer brings for you and himself two guineas which was improved on Thump's victory, one but a yard and so straight the entire six miles. The king is highly pleased with all his new market recreations, by candlelight yesterday morning and this morning hunting the hare. This afternoon he hawks and courses with greyhounds. To Norwich to-morrow, on Monday here again. The cup rid for here next week before the queen. As thou prizes earthly paradise, bring a maid of honour behind thee next week. All kinds of sporting feats, professional and amateur, were arranged for Charles's pleasure, and we need not fear the charge of degeneracy in these days when we read how on October 10th, 1670, Lord Digby, who was then quite young, bet fifty pounds that he could walk five miles within the hour on Newmarket Heath, and lost the match by half a minute although the king and all his nobles attended to see him do it stark naked and barefoot one chronicler does indeed at a loincloth it was at these times that charles was best able to carry out newcastle's admonition to put off king on tuesday the king and the jockeys met at supper at ned griffin's when there were made six horse matches for five hundred pounds a match to be run at newmarket next meeting Charles himself does not appear to have betted, except a guinea or two upon a cockfight, nor, for all records to the contrary, did he run horses of his own until the autumn meeting of 1671. But he then put his horsemanship to practical use by becoming a gentleman rider. On October 12th there was a match between his horse Woodcock and Tom Elliot's Flatfoot, in which Woodcock was beaten. 
according to the old Newmarket calendar, this race was run with owners up, though Evelyn, who was there, does not say so when he mentions it. But it is certain that two days later Charles rode the winner, not named, for the plate against Monmouth Elliot and Thomas Thin, and in October 1672 he rode two heats, being, we presume, beaten in the second, since he was not named in the course or deciding heat, when the Duke of Albemarle's horse fell and broke his neck. It was in the spring of 1675 that, after riding several races, he won his last and greatest success on the turf. Yesterday, we read in a private letter of March 21st, His Majesty rode three heats in a course on his topping horse, Blue Cap, and won the plate. All four were hard and near-ridden, and I do assure you the king won by good horsemanship. Blue Cap, Tankett, Dragon, a famous animal which he bought from Mr. May after seeing him run on March 17, 1680, with Cork, Roan, Mouse, and Postboy, were the most noted of Charles's stud. End of section 18